Welcome to the Freudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and last month in part one of our series on the use of biometrics, we focused on the different kinds of biometrics and the various uses for them. In particular, facial verification, comparing your face to a DMV photo in real time to prove you are who you say you are to prevent identity fraud. That's in contrast to the more problematic and complex practice of facial recognition, which involves trying to identify someone among masses of photos, the tech equivalent of adding more hay to the haystack while looking for a needle. In our final episode on the topic, we're going to focus less on the technical aspect of biometrics and more on the policies and procedures needed to ensure we get the maximum benefit from these tools. Returning is Stephen Smith from Intellectual Technology, Inc., a company that provides software to motor vehicle agencies to increase speed, visibility, and security of transactions, and the ITRC's very own CEO, Eva Velasquez. Stephen, let's get back into it. Yeah, in terms of identity fraud, what what can we expect from increased use of, of uh, biometrics? And what are there other things that we need to do to 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 protect identity and protect um, the integrity of the information that the company uh, you know agencies have? As we're recording this, there's a there is an active attack against organizations that store personal information, including driver's license information. The states of Oregon and Louisiana have uh, acknowledged that their entire databases have been compromised. Now, whether or not somebody's going to misuse that information, we, we don't know if they'll be able to. We don't know what they actually have, but the information is available to them, we believe. And I'd say, you know, certainly this this challenge for the ecosystem, I mean, it's, it's, it's not going away and, you know, you, you, we've got, you know, some pretty significant changes um, in the world that are taking place today in the introduction of AI uh, that I think are changing the landscape and not just for good, but for malicious actors and for criminal syndicates. So we have to be mindful of, you know, the good and, and the bad uh, for all these big changes. Um, And, I'd say, you know, when we see these events that take place, which are very serious, certainly a few things come to mind in terms of the importance of the approach and practices for how we protect our systems, the education of our and training of our employees. Uh, we have to be right uh, every time. Uh, they only have to be right once. And I think this really goes into the, the plans and the, and the approaches that we take to better understand the nature of risk as it relates to our systems, the supply chain, uh, the involvement of any kind of third-party vendors, um, all of those things are important. But when I think about these examples in particular, I think about, you know, it's it's an opportunity for us to to consider, are we using the right methods and approaches and, and practices in a consumer-facing context to prevent identity fraud? And are we, one, ensuring that we've got equitable paths for uh, for folks to get, to get through the process. But in that, are we being mindful of opportunities for fraudsters to be able to exploit, you know, some of these paths? And I think as an outcome, we certainly want to provide access to, to all individuals, but we need to think about the fraud side as well and think about, 
ensuring in, and in, in ensuring that we're you know not opening the door to fraud and and I think this is particularly true with you know with these recent you know events where you know potential driver data is out uh, we need to, uh, to to consider what our practices are and I think at like at a high level breadth and depth of of the security approach certainly matters um, in terms of do we have all the right pieces of information to form decision? And then within that, the right practices, like in the, in terms of the use of biometrics, and is that sufficient? Um, and especially sufficient in the context of, is this right for the risk profile, the level of risk? Is this, you know, these appropriate security controls for that? And so I think those are all in, important considerations when we think about how we address identity fraud risk and the various fraud schemes and scenarios. Um, and then the last point I, I'd call out is that data sources really matter. And, and I think especially in this context, how we leverage use of authoritative data sources and potentially the use of you know, biometric data uh, can really make an impact in protecting individuals' identities and ensuring that even if a fraudster could gain access to some information, that it becomes less impactful and less valuable for them because they can't use it in a way to be able to say, open up a bank account. Um, and that's where I say biometrics has a role to play. And I think they're in, depending on the application and the use and the context, uh, there are a lot of applications in, in using biometrics like facial biometrics uh, for verifying someone's claim that they are who they say they are and doing it in a way that is mitigating a lot of the risks that we're seeing from these uh, from these data breaches. And I'll, I'll just call it like maybe a few examples that we see uh, from our experience in, in motor vehicle and in driver services. Uh, and really over the last few years, there's been a pretty significant uptick in the sophistication of fraudulent state IDs. And, and criminal syndicates have gotten really good at creating really good fake driver's licenses that are able to circumvent controls that historically a lot of organizations have used to verify the authenticity, the genuineness of a state ID, especially in an online context when someone's taking a picture of this. And I'd say the other broad trend that we've seen is that the cost of doing that is dropped. And this is not a really great combination for us. It's a great combination for fraudsters when you think about that recipe and how that enables them to then proceed with fraud schemes that are based on fraudulent, really good fake IDs, fraudulent identities, and then to be able to do that at scale. And, and that's where I'd say when you've got a driver's license or a state ID that has a photo, if we can find approaches that eliminate that dependency on a physical credential, and find a way that we can corroborate directly against the authoritative data source. Well, that's a way they can stop fraud. And I think that calls out like a really interesting point on the, on the use of biometrics, how we apply controls in using biometrics to stop fraud. We should really think about and be mindful of how we, how we do it. And simply doing a one-to-one -one, uh, match where we take a selfie and match it against a, a state ID it's not going to stop a lot of fraud schemes these days because they're re using really good fake IDs. So we have to think about alternatives as an ecosystem. We have to think about alternatives to how we can combat 
these changing conditions, especially in terms of these new schemes that we're seeing in the market? Not everyone um, has access maybe to these tools. Not everybody is comfortable with the technology. Maybe they can't even take advantage of them for um, for other reasons beyond access and, and skill. So what do we do for those folks as we move into a world that does rely more and more on biometrics? That is a really good question and an important one because you know we're talking about all of the benefits of biometrics, but it's not a panacea. I mean, it's a useful tool for a big swath of people, but to your point, James, not for everyone. And so while we're you know, educating and investing time in the the consent-based, privacy-centric use of biometrics, we also have to invest in digital off-ramps for the folks that can't, either don't have access to or can't make effective use of the tools. And, you know, I've had conversations with what I'll just call my biometric evangelists, people who really think this is, this is the sole solution to all of our authentication and verification problems processes or problems. And, you know, they go, well, come on, who can't take a selfie? And then I remind them, you know, it's, it's a challenge for someone who is blind or low vision to take that selfie in a way that's going to be useful for the tools that are behind it. And so just that group, that's one group. We need to remember that even though biometrics can make it really easy for a lot of folks because it is that something that you are and you just take, you know, you take that with you everywhere you go. We don't all navigate the world the same way. So those digital off ramps are absolutely necessary. They're particularly necessary for government. I think this is the third time we're saying this on this podcast. (laughs) Government can't choose their customers. You have to have, um, you have to make your uh, benefits and they have to be accessible to everyone. So those non-digital off ramps are going to be really important. And the only way that we know who needs them and what they should be is by talking to these different groups of folks who navigate the world a little bit differently than the average person. Steve, what do you think? I, you know, I, one, I, I am certainly in agreement with Eva, the, and then you know, this is something that we really focus on, you know, within ITI. It, it's a core part of some of our programs, especially our self-service kiosk program uh, that is focused on this challenge. And when someone doesn't have the means to go online, what do you do? And not every agency is well-equipped from in terms of their f- physical footprint to be in a position to be able to extend in uh, some in-person type off-ramp. It, it means for one of their customers to be able to interact and and gain access to a benefit or a service in a way that works for, for their lives. And this is really at the heart of the challenge. It's very complex and it involves a lot of different factors. And, and I think when we think about using biometrics, there's a lot of different challenges <laughs> that all of these different populations face because it's not just, it could be infrastructure. It's not just the, you know, it's not just the tech savvy piece, but it could be infrastructure. Maybe they don't have a smartphone. They don't have a desktop, laptop, computer. Maybe they don't have broadband internet access. Um, Or it is the kind of the tech savvy uh, piece. And I think some of us have family members. I, I certainly do that are, 
not really, you know, early adopters, I'd say, in, in terms of technology uh, or really late adopters. And so we have to think about paths, especially in the government context, paths for them that work for their lives. And so we're not inadvertently excluding them when we're making investments and thinking about from, from a servicing experience what, what we're doing. And some of, the, some of the examples that really come to mind, you know, for me are, uh, you know, different, different populations, uh, you know, that, that might struggle with, you know, remote settings, uh, you know, today in terms of, for example, like visually impaired. Uh, this is a population that, you know, we have incorporated uh, that human-centered design into our self-service kiosk experience in a way that we've gone out and sought partnerships with organizations like the National Federation of the Blind to work with them on how can we build an experience for visually impaired for our self-service kiosk uh, that account for all the varying needs. And that's where I think it gets really in kind of the weeds where we need to have that level of detail. We need to walk back from all those different life experience so that we understand the technology needs, the hardware and all the infrastructure that goes into the use of say like a biometric that can actually work for them. And then when that's not enough, are there other components that we need to take in consideration? And one of the things I really love to see in revision four for the Federal Identity Guidelines uh, coming out of NIST 863 uh, was the inclusion for conversation in, in, you know, across the ecosystem. Should we be thinking about roles like applicant references where you have people that are facilitators in the process that can help guide people through a given experience that say may involve biometrics, but doing it in a way that uh, ensures that we've got additional support when it's needed. And I really love to see this because this does need to be part of the conversation um, because in some ways I think that could make a really significant impact in making sure that we're not, again, inadvertently excluding uh, some of these populations. Well, and Steve, I just want to follow up on that one thing. The fact that you're looking at both, that in some cases there, there could be a path for a facilitator, but also how can we make this experience workable when someone doesn't want or need a facilitator? I think that's so important just for human dignity. You know, you're, you're talking with the National uh, Federation for the Blind, and one of the things that they, um, one of our partners always brought up was a lot of times the workarounds for us make us feel like we're being treated like a child. I'm not a child you know, I'm a fully functional adult. I just happen to have this challenge in front of me. So the fact that you're looking at both of those pieces for, because it's not a homogenous group, right? Not, we're not all alike just because we as human beings have one specific trait in common or challenge in common. And the fact that you're addressing both, I think that's a great message. It, in, in even, you know, I, I just maybe adding to this too, I, I think of one other example, I know this might be a little different, uh, but I think about, you know, some of the challenges that we face, the life events, the good and the bad, uh, this probably being, you know, much more of a tragic event, but, you know, natural disasters, uh, something that's close to home for me, my wife's from Paradise, California in 2018, you know, the campfire absolutely just wiped out the, the Paradise area. And that was a community of over 30,000 people. And the fire struck at such a rapid rate 
and so quickly that when many of the friends of, of her family left the area, they left with just the clothes on the rack. They lost all their documentation. They lost their driver's license. They lost their mobile devices. And they were congregating down in Chico, you know, an hour away and in Walmart and other retail, you know, parking lots and trying to figure out the path forward. And that's where I see there's, there's all from, especially from a government perspective, there's all sorts of applications and uses where we can think about biometrics making a really meaningful impact. And that being a, certainly a, a very specific example, but when natural disasters and things of, of, you know, like a natural disaster make a really big impact in terms of an individual's ability to gain access to a benefit or service, and especially when there's immediacy and need for that benefit or service. I think about, you know, what are the things that we can do um, across government and industry to leverage infrastructure that might be there? Not to be able to, to extend that that you know that access in a way that preserves their dignity and provides respect, you know, and especially given the the context, uh, but also does it in a way that has that convenience and ease, so this is, doesn't create an arduous long process just to get something in place that they need. Um, and that's where I think biometrics certainly has a role to play, because yeah, I think of most states they have a biometric repository. Um, especially, I mean, if they have a state ID, so there are all kinds of considerations we can take in terms of, well, how might we use that to support a use case like that? Boy, oh boy. And would that help with the fraud? Because we get calls at any time there's a natural disaster. We get calls from people whose identities have been misused and applying for those FEMA benefits because they have no documentation and the fraudsters just swoop in. So yeah, I like that use case as well. And there you have it. Biometrics can be used for good and they can be used for bad. The trick is we have to strike the balance to make sure we have all the right controls in place to prevent the bad stuff and to take advantage of the good stuff. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Eva, it is always a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, James. Thank you, Steve. If you want to learn more about the crimes and compromises that impact your identity, privacy, or security, visit our website at idtheftcenter.org. Join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown, and we'll be back next month with another episode of The Fraudian Slip. Until then, thanks for listening.